Well, if you haven't already done so, uh, open your Bibles with me to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. Today we have the opportunity to enter into one of the most famous conversations in all of the scriptures, uh, this amazing dialogue between Jesus and a man named Nicodemus. And as we'll see today, uh, Nicodemus has some really important questions to ask Jesus. And there are questions that our writer, John, has been trying to get us to wrestle with from the very beginning of this book. The primary question being, who is Jesus? And what does this Jesus have to do with me? Uh, honestly, um, I've, I think I've told like too many people this, but I'm, I'm so excited to preach this text today. Uh, I always love teaching the Bible, uh, especially to you uh, here at FEC. But today, uh, my heart is, is so, so full of joy because today's passage um, is all about eternal life. It's all about how to enter into the kingdom of God. It's all about how to be with God forever. It's about the process of eternal life, and we're going to talk about that in just a second. But it's also about the basis of eternal life, which is how we're going to finish our time today. And what Jesus says to Nicodemus in this passage that we just read for us, what he says here is both brilliant and fascinating. Because what we're going to see Jesus do is really two things. He's going to provide us with this puzzling metaphor followed by this absolutely shocking comparison. And through it, I just know we're going to be left uh, amazed. So let's jump into this exciting text together in the time that's allotted to me. <laughs> this is what John writes to us in John chapter 3, again starting in verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So John introduces us to this man named Nicodemus, who is a Pharisee and most likely a highly regarded teacher. Uh, most scholars actually believe that he was part of the Sanhedrin, which is the top 70 men of Israel, this man had authority, a high position amongst even the religious. And so you might say, and I think you could correctly say, Nicodemus had all the credentials. And yet, here he is under the cover of night, coming to speak to Jesus because he's experiencing a bit of a crossroads situation. He's facing a conflict in his heart. You see, on the one hand, again, he's a member of the Pharisees. He's a leader there. And the Pharisees had a, had a very particular idea, a theology actually, about what it looked like for God to not only come, but also for God to bring in his kingdom. They had a very specific view of what and who their savior would be. They were sure of this, right? They fought over this, fought for this. But now, in front of him, Nicodemus has this man, Jesus. 
And Jesus doesn't fit the expectations of the Pharisees, which means, particularly as a leader of the Pharisees, he should be in verbal opposition to Jesus. He should be coming against Jesus. But there's a problem. And that is that Jesus has started to go around teaching people in a really good way. Not only that, but apparently, and we know this from the last couple of weeks, that he's also been doing these signs. And Nicodemus is aware of it. He's probably actually been there to see it. And based on those signs, it appears as though God is with Jesus. That this man, Jesus, is of God, sent by God. And so how can Nicodemus reconcile these two things? It doesn't fit his theology. It doesn't fit what he's been teaching to people probably for many years, but he can't deny that at least it seems Jesus is sent from God. He's a good Pharisee. That's his tribe. But how can he remain faithful to that group while at the same time accept Jesus? It seems like an impossibility. And so here he is. It looks like he comes in secret because it's at night, hidden, seeking an answer from Jesus. He is here to ask, what are we supposed to do with you? Who are you? There's something different about you. And again, this is the same question that John wants all of us to wrestle with. There's certainly something different about Jesus, something unique about this man, Jesus Christ. And so who is this Jesus? Well, Jesus answers. But he does so in a sort of, I'll say a crafty, uh, roundabout way. He's, he's stretching Nicodemus's mind here, okay? And I think ours as well. And this is where we get this puzzling metaphor that I told you about. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And so here, we see Jesus talking about the process of eternal life. Really two categories today, I told you, process and basis of eternal life. This fits under the process of eternal life. He gives Nicodemus the process for eternal life. He says, Nicodemus, if you want to be in the kingdom, if you want to be with me, if you want eternal life, you must be born again. Which, of course, begs the question, what does it mean to be born again? This phrase, born again, can actually also be translated born from above. Okay? And I'm convinced that Jesus intentionally uses that word, uses that phrase uh, to communicate both ideas, meaning that to get eternal life, we need to be born from above and born again. And if you're not, if you're not, Nicodemus, if you're not here today, born again, born from above, you cannot, will not see the kingdom of God. Now, uh, this language of the kingdom of God is not really common in John's gospel. OK, 
Okay? We don't see it much. It's, it's seen much more in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But for a Pharisee, especially a high-regarded Pharisee, what Jesus said right here would be of great interest. More than that, it's a huge deal because this is answering the ultimate question of life. How can a person be with God? The Pharisees revolved their life around this question. How can a person be with God forever? And so Nicodemus, out of curiosity, follows up. But what we see is that actually he is clueless as to what Jesus just said. Look at this. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? So Nicodemus kind of gets lost in the metaphor, doesn't he? (laughs) Very lost. He doesn't quite realize what Jesus is trying to say. And so he, on the spot, on the fly, makes this decision to ask Jesus back very directly, but also to take Jesus very literally. He's like, hey, Jesus, um, I don't know, like, look at me, I'm an old man. How can I finagle my way back inside of my mother's womb and then be born again, okay? Get that picture out of your head. And so Jesus being gracious, okay? He's not like, you fool, what are you talking, you know? Being gracious, he reiterates his point, but he does so in a slightly different way. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So Nicodemus, you want to enter the kingdom of God. You want to be part of what God is doing to fulfill his plan his purpose in the world. That is a good thing. It's a good desire. And so let me tell you again, in a slightly different way, how that can happen for you and how can that happen for others. You have to be born of water and of spirit, he says. Now, this passage has been interpreted lots of different ways throughout church history. And I just don't have the time to get into all the different views. There's really three primary views. But let me give you what I believe to be uh, the clear answer uh, to this. And I'm, I'm very confident, actually. I can't always say this, but I'm extremely confident that this is what Jesus just said to Nicodemus. That water and spirit are actually not separate things. They're, they're meant to be tied together. They're not meant to be two different steps or two different actions in the process of eternal life. They are a single idea. So Jesus is saying, Nicodemus, you need to be born from above, born again. And another way to say that, just in a different way, is you need water and spirit birth, which is one and the same. They work together. And the reason that I believe so strongly uh, that this is what Jesus is saying is because this imagery of water and spirit is actually repeated all throughout the Old Testament to show us very specific things. To, to show us this special, saving, renewing work of God to his people or for his people. Water and spirit are often found together, used to show us how God reaches down from heaven to earth to rescue, cleanse, and renew 
his children. This is common. But there is one strong example of this that I want to show you to make my case. Look with me at Ezekiel chapter 36. In this passage, God is speaking to the Israelites who are in exile. And he is talking about how despite their turning away from him, which they kept doing, despite their falling, despite their failing, how he has decided to rescue them, how he's made the decision to save them, how he's made the decision for the sake of his name, for the sake of his glory to redeem them. He says, I'm going to save you and the nations will know that I am God. That's my purpose. It's not because you did the right thing. It's not because you earned it, not because you deserved it. It's not because you even repented. I'm going to save you for my namesake, for my glory, so that the nations will know that I am God. And then listen to what he says. He says, to the Israelites, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. So we see here clean water, a new spirit associated with getting a new heart. And what does that sound like? Well, it's kind of like a new birth, right? Being renewed, regenerated. Later on in the passage, God actually says that he will give life to their dry bones. That's what he says. That I'm going, he says, I'm going to breathe life into you so that you come alive once again. New birth, renewed. And so keeping that in mind, as we go back to Jesus, we go back to Nicodemus, Jesus now, keep this in mind, he is He's standing before an expert in the law. A man schooled in the Old Testament deeply. He would have had it memorized, forwards and backwards, no doubt about it. And he's like, you know this passage, don't you, Nicodemus? Ezekiel 36, you know it. You know the imagery that water and spirit show that God has a pattern of reaching down and doing something new, doing something miraculous. This is how he works. And the point is, the point he's trying to make to Nicodemus is the people, the Israelites, had no control over this. They couldn't bring life to themselves. It doesn't happen by itself. They couldn't rescue themselves, save themselves. God and God alone needed to come and do this new and miraculous thing for them. And Jesus says, Nicodemus, the same truth is true today. It hasn't changed. You want life? You want to be made new? You cannot make it happen. This has to come from above. This has to be something, this new birth, has to be something that God does. And just to make it very clear, Jesus says to Nicodemus in verse 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, 
and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. What is he saying there? He's saying you cannot produce as a earthly, created, human, fleshly being, you cannot produce spiritual things. You cannot produce in yourself spiritual renewal. You cannot make this new birth happen in your own effort, in your own strength. By keeping the law as you've been teaching, you cannot earn or produce new spiritual life. The new life that you need can only come as a gift of God. It can only happen through the Spirit of God. Well, then he continues this kind of contrast in verse 8, the earthly versus spiritual realities. Jesus says, the wind blows, he's emphasizing his point, the wind blows where it wishes and it hears its sound. You hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Jesus says, this makes sense to us as well. I think we'll get this part. You see the effects of the wind. You feel the effects of the wind, but you don't really understand the wind. Right? You, you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. And you don't have the ability to control it. And again, it's the same thing with being born again. Being born from above. Jesus is telling Nicodemus, you cannot manufacture this. You cannot control this. Get it? That's what he says. Understand? And what is Nicodemus' response? Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? He is continuing to be clueless. <laughs> At a total loss with all of this. And to that, Jesus is actually just dumbfounded now. He's shocked. Like, Nicodemus, you are like the teacher of teachers in Israel. And you don't understand what I'm saying? You're confused? So here's the problem. This is what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus. Here's the problem. You see me. He says this in the following verses. You see me. And you've seen the signs. You hear my teaching. You've heard my testimony. But you don't actually listen. That's your problem. You hear the truth, but you don't actually receive the truth. And then Jesus gives this sort of final statement in regards to trying to explain. He's like, Basically saying, this is as far as I can take you, Nicodemus. It ends here. He says this in verse 12. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? He's like, Nicodemus, I understand your heart, your attention, intention here. You keep pressing me pressing in on me for deeper and higher explanations of the new birth. But a heart of unbelief cannot obtain, cannot ascend, cannot comprehend the kinds of truth that I am trying to share with you here. Nicodemus, you don't get it. 
And unfortunately, what he's saying to Nicodemus here is that you cannot get it. You're not going to get it. But then we see this really significant shift take place. And you know, if I was Jesus, I was thinking about this last night, actually, sitting there writing this, thinking about the story, thinking about like if I was in Jesus's place and Nicodemus, I was thinking like a high, high like seminary professor. That's what I was thinking. Came to me, asked me these questions and I'm trying to explain and they don't get it. I was thinking, if I was Jesus, I would have just moved on. I tried, right? Did my best. You're a leader of the Jews, so you should understand, but you don't. So I'm just moving on, right? Pearl before swine. You'd probably use a Bible verse even. Right? There's nothing more to say. You don't get it. You don't really want to get it. But that's not Jesus. See, before first, verse 13, it's actually interesting what Jesus does. Jesus, before verse 13, is actually talking more like an instructor, like a teacher. He's explaining systematically the process of this eternal life and this new birth. There's not a lot of emotions involved. He's saying, the process of eternal life, it's, it's spiritual, Nicodemus. It, it happens by the work of the Spirit. It comes like the wind, and you can't explain it. But after verse 13, Jesus shifts to talking about the basis of that new birth in what the Son of Man has come to do. And more than that, he's going to tell Nicodemus In his grace and mercy, he's going to share with Nicodemus how to receive the Spirit's work of the new birth. He's not going to leave him hanging, in other words. So now we see Jesus move to the basis for eternal life. So Jesus says this in verse 13. This is the pivot verse in the text. He says, No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. In other words, the reason I can give you heavenly explanations, Nicodemus, tell you what I'm about to tell you, tell you what I have been telling you, is that I have actually come down from heaven. See, here's the reality. No one has gone into heaven so that they can do what I'm about to do and say what I'm about to say. But I was in heaven with the Father, and now I have come down, and now I'm about to share with you what I have come to do. This is profound. And to explain this, Jesus moves from that puzzling metaphor of being like born again how does like you need to be born again what does that even mean water and wind and spirit but now Jesus moves into this absolutely shocking shocking comparison and it comes from the old testament an old testament story that Nicodemus again would have been very very familiar with look with me at verse 14 and 15 
And we're going to camp out here for just a couple of minutes. It's, it's that important. Jesus says this. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. I want us to try to grasp, wrap our minds around what Jesus has done right here. I was stuck here for a while, weeks actually, thinking through like what Jesus just said right here. And the more I dug, the more profound it got, the more glorious it became. I cannot wait. This is waiting for weeks to share this with you. We got to wrap our minds around what Jesus has just done because Jesus, listen now, you got to let me finish because you can clip this and I'll be canceled. Listen, because Jesus, what he just did was actually, he just compared himself with a snake. And, And if you are churched at all, you're a follower of Jesus that should be absolutely shocking to you and not make sense. Because when you and I think of the imagery of serpents and snakes throughout the Old Testament, what are we supposed to think of? What do we typically think of? Where do our minds automatically go in the scriptures? Satan, right? The temptation in the garden. Serpents are meant meant to make you feel this sense of evil and wickedness and deception, deceit, corruption. But Jesus says, I'm like a snake. That's what he says. I'm like the snake. And so we need to make sense of this and go back to the story that Jesus is referring to here. This is Numbers chapter 21, verses 4 through 9. Follow along with me. He says this. It says this in that text. Moses writes this. From Mount Or, they, this is the Israelites, set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. So the Israelites have been rescued, delivered out of their enslavement from the Egyptian people. They're wandering around the wilderness and the people became impatient on the way. So what do they do? Verse five, and the people spoke against God and against Moses. They asked this amongst themselves and to the leaders. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water and we loathe this worthless food. Food that God has provided, by the way. We loathe, we hate this worthless food. Then the Lord, imagine this, then the Lord sent fiery serpents. It means poisonous, extremely deadly, venomous snakes among the people. He sends the snakes and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And so the people came to Moses. You can imagine this. Families running to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord, and we've spoken against you, Moses. 
There's a sense of plea here right now, begging him, pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, something very interesting. He says to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. And so Moses made a bronze serpent, fashioned it, and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he or she would look at the bronze serpent that Moses had fashioned, and they would live. (laughs) Interesting story. So I want us to observe a few things here that are going to shed great light on what Jesus has told Nicodemus. First of all, I want us to note here that the serpent on the pole that Moses made is not preventative. In other words, the serpent on the pole didn't keep the people from being bit, from being poisoned. But without it, they will die. Second, you need to see here that the snakes in the camp are actually from God. They're sent by God. He's the one who sends the snakes. He sends the snakes because of their sin, because of their wickedness. The wrath of God comes to the Israelites because of their rebellion, their grumbling, their sin. Third, again, we got to get this, grasp this with me, follow me. Third, we see here that God, in this incredible way, God chooses, actually, to rescue the people from his own curse that he sent with a picture of the curse itself. Okay? God sends a curse and saves the people with a picture of the curse. God sends snakes to curse the people, kill the people, and has Moses make a snake to heal the people. And then finally, finally, we see here that all the people had to do in order to be saved from God's wrath was to look at his provision. Look at the snake sitting on the pole, hanging on that pole. And so now, going back to Jesus, he looks at Nicodemus and says, listen to me, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And so, in light of the story we read in Numbers 21, what is Jesus actually telling us here, not just Nicodemus, but telling you and I here in John chapter 3? Let me make a few very, very essential observations for us in regards to this. And this is really going to bring us home today. First of all, and this is really obvious, but it must be said, Jesus is telling Nicodemus that he is the Son of Man. 
Okay, let's start there. I don't want to assume that. Jesus is the son of man who must be lifted up. He identifies himself, Jesus identifies himself with this title, son of man, all throughout the gospels. And by lifted up, we see this all throughout the gospels. By lifted up, he means being put up, placed on, hung on the cross. Jesus is the son of man who must be lifted up on the cross. The same way the bronze snake was lifted up. That's what Jesus is getting at here. He's talking about himself to Nicodemus, and he's speaking of his own crucifixion. Second observation here is that where the bronze snake was the source of healing and physical rescue from the poison for the Israelites, it saved them, actually, Jesus is saying, I am now the source of healing and rescue from the poison of sin and the wrath of God. I am the source of eternal life. Hear me. Moses, we got to get this. Moses is not the rescuer. He is not the savior in the number story. It's not about Moses. It's not about what he did, what he fashioned. In numbers, the one who saves is God by means of the snake. And in John, the one who saves is God by means of Jesus. That's what Jesus is saying. Come on now, stay with me. Okay, you got to be at least half as excited as I am right now. Get there. Okay, third observation. I'll try again. Right? This is hard to get our heads around, but when you do, it, this, is, this is glorious. What Jesus is actually doing here in John 3 is portraying himself as evil. Jesus is portraying himself as a curse. What did you just say, Pastor James? <laughs> here in John 3, Jesus is portraying himself to Nicodemus as evil and a curse. And that's again why this is so shocking. It's not that he's just saying, I'm like the snake. It's also because he's saying, I'm like evil. I'm like the curse. The snakes were evil. The snakes were killing people. And the bronze snake that is placed on that pole is a picture of God's curse on the people. And so it was with Jesus. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 5.2. He says this, For our sake, God made him, that's Jesus, for our sake, God made him to be sin. Don't miss that. God made Jesus to be sin. He made him sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And in Galatians 3, Paul writes this. He says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How did he do it? By becoming a curse 
for us. He became sin, became evil, became a curse for us. So Jesus, in becoming like the snake, became sin. He took the fullness of our sin, of our rebellion, the fullness of the wrath of God, the totality, he took on the totality of our punishment, what we deserved for our rebellion, for our wickedness, for our turning away, and why? So that he could take our sin and so that he could take our curse away. You see, what Jesus gives us from the cross is healing. It's saving. It's rescue. He gives us eternal life. The Son of Man, Jesus says, must be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Understand this amazing gospel message with me today. When our sin and God's wrath are taken away from us, God can be with us. And if he is for us and with us, we will never die but we will live forever with him, in him, in joy. So here is Nicodemus, all confused about the new birth, doesn't understand how it happens. He cannot comprehend it, can't, can't wrap his mind around how eternal life can be a reality. And so Jesus Being so good, Jesus simplifies things. He simplifies things by saying to him, Nicodemus, here it is. This is what you need to do. Jesus says, believe in me. Believe in me. All these metaphors, wind, water, whatever. Okay, all right, you don't get it? Here's what it is. Believe in me. And what does that involve? What does that mean? Well, Jesus tells us all here, how were the Israelites saved? They looked at the snake, lifted up, and we are told they lived. They looked, they looked. And likewise, how do you here today and I receive eternal life? We look at Jesus We look at him, the one who is high and and lifted up on that cross for our sins. And then you can live. Nicodemus, do you want the grace of a new birth? That's what you're seeking, right? Look. Do you want want life eternal? Look. Do, Do you want joy completely and fully today? In front of me at night, look. Do you want mercy from God? Look. Do you want assurance of your salvation? Look, look, look and live. And the beauty of this is that it's so simple, isn't it? How much pain does it take you to look? How much striving, how much effort, how much work 
does it require you to just look. You don't need a college degree to do this. You don't need a special gifting. You don't need to be born into the right family. You just need to look. So many of us today, including myself, we are, we are looking to other things, other places, other people. So many of us are looking to ourselves for fulfillment and satisfaction, but there is no use looking there. No use. You'll never find comfort there. You'll never find help in yourself. You'll never find hope in yourself. Jesus says, look at me. Fix your eyes on me. See me for who I am. See me for what I have done. Look at me. I lived for you. Look at me. I'm hanging on the cross. Look at me. I'm dead and buried. Look at me. I've risen. Look at me. I've ascended from heaven, seated at the right hand of God with all power and all authority. Look at me. I'm coming back for you to take you home to be with me. Look at me. Look. Look, and when you do, you will find life. You will be born again. You can be in all the right gatherings, have all the right Bible answers, know all the right theology. You can have Christian parents, Christian friends, but none of that will get you eternal life. You must be born again. Meaning, something has to happen to you that comes from someone other than you. Your good character is not enough. The message of Jesus is not do more. It's not try harder. It's not look inside and find your true self. The message of the gospel is look to Jesus. So today, it's a really simple question for you. Have you done that? Have you looked to Jesus? Have you looked to the one who offers you eternal life? Today, you can be born again. All you need to do is trust Jesus. Look to the one who was lifted up on the cross for you. And for those of us who are followers of Jesus in the room, We've already looked. What's the message for us today? Well, first of all, this message should just simply be an encouragement to you and a reminder to you of what Jesus has done, of his grace, of his majesty, of his glory, the good news of the gospel. But also, I want you, those of you who know Jesus, who've looked at Jesus, I want you to see that Jesus doesn't say to Nicodemus that you need to be born again, again. And again, so if you put your faith in Christ, if you have made the decision to look at him and you find yourself continually, not perfectly, but continually looking at him, reminding yourself to look at him, today you can rest in the new life that he has given you today. You can be at peace. You should and can have great joy today, knowing that you are born again and that you will inherit the kingdom of God. You belong to Jesus and will be with Jesus and all the saints forever. 
This is the simple gospel. What is required for eternal life now and forever? Jesus tells us, you must be born again. And how does that happen? How is a person born again? They look to Jesus. They look and live. Let me pray for you.